welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. I'm proud to announce the sponsor of this week's podcast, Cleovana. Cleovana is a novel gynecologic treatment that increases arousal and sensitivity in the vaginal area by using sound waves to increase vascularity and innervation of the vulvar area. This simple, non-invasive treatment involves no lasers, scalpels, needles, and importantly, no downtime off from your busy life. To learn more about this procedure or to request a consultation with one of their certified and skilled clinicians, please visit cleovana.com. That's spelled C-L-I-O-V-A-N-A.com. Thank you, Cleovana, for sponsoring this week's podcast. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the show. Today's episode was really inspired by my real-life patients. Actually, as I say that, all of these episodes are inspired by my real-life patients and things that I most commonly hear and see and get asked. But I do want to tell you a little bit about what's been going on and my role where I work at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Connected to the Brigham and Women's Hospital is its sister or cousin hospital, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I have had the amazing opportunity and pleasure to connect with many of the oncologists at Dana-Farber who are world-renowned experts in treating breast cancer. Because of this exciting collaboration, I have been getting and seeing a lot of breast cancer survivors and patients undergoing current breast cancer treatment, all experiencing menopausal symptoms in one way or another. Now, this is not by far the first time I've seen breast cancer patients. I also see a lot of BRCA patients, BRCA with cancer, BRCA without cancer, patients who've had their ovaries surgically moved for increased risk of breast cancer, whether it is BRCA or it's Lynch syndrome or another genetic abnormality. But I realized I didn't have a podcast to send them to. I have not yet tackled the topic of breast cancer, and menopausal symptoms. And so that is what we are talking about today. I am so excited to have a dedicated episode on this, not just for my breast cancer survivors or those who are actively undergoing breast cancer, but this is a great episode to listen to if you are an avid listener of this podcast, but you are sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. For you to think about for friends or family members to continue to be a strong advocate in women's midlife health, because it doesn't mean that if you get a diagnosis of breast cancer or other female reproductive cancers, that there are simply no options for you. So I want to dedicate this to patients who are currently getting chemotherapy, radiation, having surgery, or who have had in the past, because I want you to know that your symptoms still matter. Your quality of life is so important and that there are things that we can do. So let's go ahead and get right into it. So I think there's actually two big types or ways to think about this. You could have been premenopausal at the time of your cancer diagnosis, 
or you could have already been postmenopausal at the time of your cancer diagnosis. And there's a little bit difference in the fact that women who are premenopausal are probably going to be put or induced into chemical or surgical menopause. So the majority of the time, chemically, this is done by a medication to shut down your ovaries. Most commonly, the name is Lupron. And some people also tend to have their ovaries removed if they're, if they're already at a higher risk for ovarian cancer, and that will put you in a pretty sunned and unexpected menopause earlier than you thought. So menopause probably in your premenopausal years. So presumably, you know, even younger than the average age of menopause 51. So commonly in your 40s and also commonly, but more rarely in your 30s and under. Of course, then there's the other group of women who are already menopausal at the time of breast cancer treatment. And that means that they may have already been experiencing some of these symptoms. Perhaps they didn't have any or they were under control or they were using hormone therapy and now they have to uh, stop their hormone therapy regimen because of their new cancer diagnosis. So initially what I want to start by doing is going by symptomatology. And in and of itself, I think that's really important because just thinking about what symptoms you're having is really important to tease out how we can best treat it using, of course, non-hormonal options. But I, I'm going to make a little bit of points and comments about the differences sometimes if you were pre-menopausal or post-menopausal at the time of the diagnosis, because it really does matter. It really does play a big role in things. The next point I want to make before going into the different types of symptoms is that you have the right to feel okay. And I really just want to take a moment to say this because I see so many grateful breast cancer survivors and other survivors of reproductive cancers who are otherwise so happy to be alive or to be here. And they've really put on the back burner things like severe hot flashes, severe insomnia, so much pain with intercourse that they never have intercourse again, or they have frequent urinary tract infections, osteoporosis, osteopenia, because they're so happy that they have survived their cancer. And I want you to know that the purpose is for you to live. And the purpose is for you to live. We want you to wake up every day having many more good days than bad days. And so that is going to mean thinking about your symptoms. And I do say this again because my women who are premenopausal and are put into menopause often have a sudden big change in their life. Suddenly their physiology is drastically different. There was no time to this natural menopause state. There was no time to get acclimated or adjusted to that. And they're snapped into menopause when they're also, you know, younger, maybe they've been working, they have young children, they have uh, family members who rely on them. And it's just a lot at once. So you always have a right to think about your other symptoms and your quality of life. In fact, the big reason I became a menopause doctor, and I talked about this in my podcast, on why I became a menopause doctor was that many moons ago, I thought I was going to be an oncologist. I actually started an OBGYN and then I switched to internal medicine and I thought, well, breast cancer is the best way for me to take care of women. And when I rotated with one of the most amazing oncologists in Cleveland, I realized after she left the room, I kept asking my patients, well, how is your mood? How are you sleeping? How is your sexual function? And I really realized that while the breast cancer was so important, so is the rest of you. So there's that moment that I want to give you for you to realize it's okay to ask, inquire, and think and treat your other symptoms. Let's start by talking about the most common, which is hot flashes. So hot flashes 
certainly can be induced by some of these medications, especially some of the chemotherapeutics and the long-term chemotherapeutics. So the big two classifications, you know, not being a bonafide oncologist are going to be your tamoxifen and you're going to have your aromatase inhibitors, things like letrozole, aromatase. Those are aromatase inhibitors. Tamoxifen is typically used in premenopausal women and aromatase inhibitors typically used in postmenopausal women. Although again, I see these being used kind of fluidly and uh, these are always up to your oncologist on what medication you're going to take and they have extended the years of which you're going to take them. On average, aromatase inhibitors tend to be a little bit harsher in terms of their anti-estrogen effects, thereby inducing some more of those menopausal-like symptoms because menopause is a state of low and no estrogen. And again, similarly, if you are premenopausal, this is going to probably feel even harsher if you have not experienced a hot flash ever in your life. What are our options for hot flashes? Well, certainly hormone therapy is off the table. It's going to be contraindicated. There's no question about that. And I don't think you might want to take hormone therapy at this point. So you're going to have to choose from some non-hormonal options. I do have a whole podcast on non-hormonal options, which is a few episodes back, and that's just 30 minutes of non-hormonal options. And so that's a great episode if you're interested in learning more about those. No, I have a lot to say on non-hormonal options. I think that some are a little bit better or maybe a little bit more efficacious, and that is just personal experience in doing this so much, but not one size fits all and not all women are the same. Non-hormonal medications are typically off-label except for one, and I'll come back to that. And that means if they're off-label, that means that they have an FDA diagnosis for something else. So if you have that other issue and hot flashes, that is a good matchup. So sometimes you doctor and you might want to try and match up any other symptoms that you might have. What is the one and only FDA approved medication, non-hormonal medication for hot flashes? It is called Brisdell, B-R-I-S-D-E-L-L, 7.5 milligrams. Now, one disclaimer in talking about Brisdell is that Brisdell renders tamoxifen less effective, as do the other SSRIs. So if you are on tamoxifen, unfortunately, you cannot use Brisdell or its cousins in the SSRI family. Brisdell is actually a lower dose of another commercially available medication you've probably heard of called the brand name is Paxil and the generic name is Paroxetine. Paroxetine is an SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And so typically it's often used on label for anxiety or depression. And what scientists have found is that at these very low doses, so low dose is key, that some of that uh, serotonin in the brain can help blunt hot flashes. So Bristol was created, which is an even lower dose of the commercially available paroxetine, which is lowest dose it comes in is 10. They created Bristol, which is also really paroxetine 7.5 milligrams. Now, Brazil is a great option. It's going to help blunt hot flashes. It may not be as efficacious as, say, hormone therapy. If you're a postmenopausal woman who now has to come off her hormone therapy, but it's going to help. And I recommend taking these at night because sometimes that extra serotonin in the brain helps us naturally fall asleep. 
because Brazil tends to be costly, which is so frustrating, uh, sometimes I will also use paroxetine 10 milligrams because again, it is a, a lower dose and it is often easy to get in a cost-effective manner. Now, jumping from here, a lot of people use SSRIs and SNRIs, which is serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, as well as SSRIs. And all of these are used off-label, except for Bristol. And that's, again, it's probably also too because of lack of funding and research and finding other SSRIs that are effective. However, the rest are technically off-label. So these work really nicely to help blunt hot flashes at low doses. They might also help boost your mood, but we're not thinking that you're secretly depressed and that's why you're having hot flashes. But certainly uh, these can also help. Other things that people tend to use is low-dose fluoxetine, low-dose escitalopram, low-dose of uh, Effexor as well. Now, some of the medications that are SNRIs do need to be taken twice a day, like Effexor. Its its generic name is venlafaxine. And if they give you more side effects than benefits, then it's not worth it. So typically for these medications, you can give this a good six-week trial, and you should know if it is helping. Other medications in this category include gabapentin. Gabapentin is a uh, neuroleptic medication. It's really good for nerve pain. And so if you have, say, a, a herniated disc or you have any other type of radiating pain down your shoulder or down your spine, sometimes a low-dose gabapentin can also help blunt hot flashes and also help with some of your neuropathy. I tend to start with 100 to 300 milligrams. Again, lower dose is the key. Another oral option is oxybutynin. Oxybutynin is an overactive bladder medication, and it does have some side effects. So for my breast cancer survivors, they often don't want to deal with these side effects, which include dry mouth and constipation. However, if you also suffer from overactive bladder, this is a really good option that you could try to see if it does help blunt your hot flashes. And also, there is a medication called clonidine. It is an old antihypertensive, so it does reduce your blood pressure. It is good for those of you who have slightly elevated blood pressure because it's going to help your blood pressure and it may also help blunt your hot flashes. But this is also not a great option if you already have, if you're normotensive or your blood pressure is no low or normal. Interestingly, there's a lot of research being done on a few new non-hormonal medications for hot flashes, and that's really exciting. It will probably take a few more years to see if these medications are going to be put on the market and FDA approved, but that means that there is more coming down the pipeline. And unfortunately, hot flashes can last a really long time. And so these are great new options for me and other experts to be on the lookout for and to give this information to you. So I want you to know that they are working on novel, brand new medications in the non-hormonal class to help blunt hot flashes. So that is really, really exciting. And I promise you, I will be updating you on those as soon as those are out or found to be efficacious and especially when they're commercially available. Now let's talk about hot flashes and non-medications because some people say I just finished radiation and chemo and my body is exhausted and I don't want to take any more medications. So let's talk about some of the other things that I have found that I loop in to see if I can help with hot flashes. 
One is the Ember Wave device. The Ember Wave device is something that you wear on your wrist, you press it when you feel a hot flash, and it sends a cooling sensation down your arm. Full disclosure, this is a product that I'm actively researching. I want to know if it is really efficacious, but it certainly isn't harmful. It can definitely help because it sends a nice cooling sensation down your arm when you're experiencing a hot flash. And it also has a nice sleep function, so you can keep it on a cool mode when you're sleeping. And perhaps it's reducing the core body temperature. Perhaps it's actually just decreasing your anxiety around the hot flash. But the Ember Wave device is also something that I find to be particularly helpful. You can go online and you can search for it. It does retail anywhere from $200 to $300, depending on the sale at the time. Another thing that I really like is called the Rat Me Cool cooling scarf. I actually did an interview with the founder of Rat Me Cool, and that's a few episodes back. This is a lovely, lovely option because you can take this uh, uh, scarf and you can run it under some cold water and you can wrap it around you and it's not going to drip or get your clothes wet. It, it comes in a beautiful array of colors. There's big ones, there's smaller ones. And so you can check that out. You can go to ratmecool.com. And speaking of those types of clothing products, there are a lot on the market. And so I always do just put out a disclaimer of, you know, I, I always just don't want my patients to spend so much money on something that may not work, but it's again, it's a risk benefit ratio for you. Certainly these are not medications. And so the safety of them is going to be high. And the biggest risk is just going to be a little bit of a financial hit. I have an Amazon store and I will link that below in the description for this podcast episode. And in there, I have links to some of my other favorite lifestyle things like cooling sheets and cooling pajamas, cooling fans that you can also put in your purses, because those are also wonderful options for women who are looking for just no other medications. Another one of my favorite products is the Pause Well Aging uh, whole line. So Poswell Aging is just a wonderful brand that I've really, really liked. And I have to tell you, I, I, I love getting samples. I get samples all the time. If you are also a, a distributor or you have a product that you want me to try, reach out to me. You can email me and I'd be happy to try your product. That's how I learn about these. And it is often how I gain some of my favorites. But the Poswell Aging line is wonderful. Uh, they have a cooling mist that you can also carry around in your purse. It has a sort of nice eucalyptus scent to it. It's also really calming and soothing. And so that cooling mist is also a really nice option. Again, non-medical, not going to harm you in any way, shape, or form. So I also recommend that cooling mist. In terms of lifestyle or interventions that you can do, NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, which I'm a part of and I almost always talk about, has done a lot of research in terms of what types of exercises will help with hot flashes, you know, or is it yoga or acupuncture? And I want to go over that list for you too. And it's somewhat, uh, not terribly helpful because the majority of these, when we look at them in studies, don't show clear benefit, but they also don't show harm. So let me go over those and kind of explain that all to you. The two things that they did find helpful um, were cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnosis. Let's start with cognitive behavioral therapy. This is something that you would do with a trained psychologist and or psychiatrist and learn how to use your own cognitive feedback, whether it's breathing, um, the way you're breathing, uh, the feelings that you feel within your body. You're using this cognitive feedback to help reduce the sensation or the fear or the severity of the hot flash. And that has actually been shown to be beneficial. So if there is someone locally in your area who is a good psychologist, 
who are a licensed social worker and has experience with women in menopause, you could consider cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as CBT. Now, the other thing they found to have a positive result was hypnosis, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. I have never sent someone for hypnosis because I it just hasn't kind of come up. I don't know anyone locally who does it, and I still feel a little funny about it, all honesty. So I'm just throwing that out there to give you the full facts. What they didn't find to have clear benefit was things like exercise, yoga, um, diet, healthy diets, etc. although clearly those do not have any harm. And so I say in my podcast, I also did on natural menopause, which majority of you loved, which is also a few episodes back, you know, thinking about adding some of those lifestyle things, if they work for you and they're healthy, please keep on doing them. Yoga is in some ways you know, I think a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, you're listening to your breathing, you're feeling your belly go up and down, you're feeling your body as you're doing those stretches. So I I certainly don't think any of those things could be harmful. But if you also say, gee, Dr. Hirsch, I really never liked yoga. Well, don't get into it. There's other things that you can do. Eating healthy and certainly avoiding um, unhealthy lifestyle like smoking and uh, frequent alcohol intake is definitely also going to help. Uh, But again, there's been no solid research like there has been with cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnosis. I think acupuncture is still unknown whether it's beneficial or not in, in big clinical studies. Again, I don't think that I would find it harmful. I just wouldn't want you, again, to be spending money on something that really wasn't having the benefits. So all of these, you certainly are welcome to try, but if you don't find them to be helpful, don't continue to do them. Let's now jump to genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So genitourinary syndrome of menopause is a mouthful. So I'm going to call it GSM from here. And what that really is, is an atrophy of not just the vagina, but also the labia, the clitoris, the enteritis, the perineum, the bladder, the ureter, or the urethra, all the areas in the lower pelvic bowl lose that estrogen and therefore they become very atrophic. This is really important for my premenopausal women to know because this means that GSM is progressive and chronic. So you are tacking on years to that pathology of GSM. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, hot flashes may stop over time, right? The average length of hot flashes is about five to seven years. Eventually, your receptors for either estrogen downregulate in your brain and you stop having hot flashes or there's some other physiology that we haven't uncovered yet. But hot flashes for the majority of women do tend to stop, although 10% of women will have hot flashes for the rest of their life. But unlike that process, genitourinary syndrome of menopause is progressive. It is not going to get better because estrogen is most likely not coming back. So this makes a big difference if this happened to you at 37 or 42 versus 50, 54, 55. So I really want to make that point really, really clear. It's not just about your sexual function, but that still, that still is important but it's also about the pH of the vagina. It's about urinary incontinence. You can listen to the last episode I did with Kelly Casperson on incontinence and how the loss of estrogen plays a role in that. It has to do with the number and frequency of urinary tract infections and so much more. So we don't just want to ignore the entire lower pelvis. 
Now, what are your options? Let's talk about patients who are currently undergoing therapy. If you're currently undergoing therapy, there are some options. For those of you on aromatase inhibitors, there are even less, unfortunately, but there are some. There are over-the-counter lubricants and moisturizers that you can use. And I do have some products that I really, really like. The first is Uber Lube. Uber Lube is more of a lubricant, so maybe used more for intercourse. When we're thinking about moisturizers, your options for that are like hyaluronic acid. And a new one has been on the market since May, and this comes from Pharma. And this is a product of uh, hyaluronic acid and vitamin E that I really like. I recently received samples on and have been giving some samples away to my patients on aromatase inhibitors. And so there are some options for you as well. If you are using a tamoxifen and you've had your breast cancer treated, you're no longer actively undergoing chemotherapy and radiation, there are some instances, if the GSM is very severe, if you want to step up your game from the hyaluronic acid products, we can consider local vaginal estrogen. Now, for many of my patients, that's very scary for them, but many of the oncologists are also starting to realize how important the pelvic bowl, the vagina, and the bladder are. And there is so much data to show that vaginal estrogen does not travel systemically. It does not increase the recurrent risk of breast cancer. So I will have many patients who have completed their uh, breast cancer chemo and radiation. They've had their surgery and they're on tamoxifen for now five or 10 years. And that is a, a pretty long road to go before you're really on nothing. But for many of those patients, if they had early stage or well-treated breast cancer, in conjunction with their oncologist, I will discuss with them the use of local vaginal estrogen. The difference between estrogen and moisturizers and lubricants are that moisturizers and lubricants are going to be a little bit of a band-aid. They're not going to change the underlying physiology. And if I could show you a picture, I would, because the picture says a thousand words, but we're on a podcast. But the changes in the vagina, which occur everywhere, right? Not just the vagina, I said that, includes just the loss of the cellular layer that makes lubrication. It, it makes the vagina so it's not really elastic or stretchy. And that happens everywhere. That's why it becomes so atrophic. That's why it could shrivel. That's why you might see your clitoris or your labia shrivel. It's because of that atrophy. It's the change in the pH. It's the loss of the estrogen. So to really change that, physiology, you really do need to add back some local vaginal estrogen. So when I am doing this, I always work in conjunction with someone's oncologist. And there certainly is a lot of data to show that there are certain survivors for whom we could use vaginal estrogen products. Again, the biggest and the hardest group is my patients on aromatase inhibitors. It's just really contraindicated at that time. But again, we can try lots of moisturizers um, and lubricants. There's also Rosebud Woman who sponsored the podcast uh, many episodes ago, which create these really lovely, nice, hydrating moisturizers for the labia. So I would recommend those as well. So there's lots and lots of different options. For breast cancer survivors in general who are no longer uh, actively undergoing any type of treatment, I also, including those that we just mentioned, again, also really talk to them a lot about adding a vaginal estrogen. 
In terms of my survivors, there's a couple other newer products that I like to tell them about. It doesn't have to be the old school Estrace or Vagifem, which is 10 micrograms of estradiol. Again, stays really just in the vagina. But Therapeutics MD is a company that came out with a product called Invixi. Invixi is a little, I call it jelly bean, estradiol and coconut oil, and it comes in a 10 microgram and a 4 microgram. So it comes in an ultra low dose. And that can be really helpful if even just psychologically you feel better taking an ultra low dose of vaginal estrogen. Uh, there's another product called Interosa. Its uh, generic name is Parastrone. Parastrone is vaginal DHEA. This is great because it is now commercially available. I used to have to get this compounded. Vaginal DHEA is like DHEA that you can get at the counter, over the counter at Whole Foods and take it uh, orally. Although it's a vaginal component, it converts intracellularly, so deep in the cells into estrogen and testosterone. Androgens, which is that testosterone, is also really good for the entire lower GU tract and really doesn't travel systemically. And it really isn't estradiol. It's DHEA. And that's another nice option for my breast cancer survivors. So I do just want to put those out there. Now, there hasn't been as much research on parasterone in breast cancer survivors, but we really do assume a lot of the same safety and efficacy of the low-dose vaginal estrogens. By low-dose, I mean 10 microgram. We also uh, will then extrapolate that to the even lower dose, the 4 micrograms. But in a large clinical study, a meta-analysis in August of 2019, the Lancet published this huge meta-analysis of looking at over 52 different types of studies of hormone therapy, and there has been no associated risk of breast cancer with vaginal estrogens or recurrence of breast cancer from vaginal estrogens. So it is certainly a conversation. It doesn't mean that you have to use it. I never want my patients to feel forced or coerced, but it can be really helpful. And again, one of the things that can land you in a nursing home is urosepsis, which can happen from frequent urinary tract infections or urinary tract infection that gets into your bloodstream that can cause a really debilitating condition called sepsis. And it's not to say that that is frequent, but it is just to say the vagina is so important and it's still there. It's still attached to our body. And if we just completely ignore it, that could also have some negative consequences. And there are lots of options. Let's move on to sleep. Sleep is something that uh, definitely disproportionately seems to affect women in midlife, or maybe I'm just biased because I see it and hear it and talk about it so much, but it definitely can coincide with uh, worsening anxiety and uh, you know, certainly with a breast cancer diagnosis or being a breast cancer survivor, these are things that can stay with you. They can cause, they can be traumatic, they can cause PTSD, and that can lead to insomnia. Insomnia is really important to identify and to think about treating because I always say to my patients, your lifespan can decrease significantly if you are not getting at least seven to eight hours of sleep. And there is strong research to show that. So again, not something to just be ignored because you're so happy that you made it through the cancer because it's also so important to you living your best life and being around for as long as we can. 
So sleep is so, so, so important. I did another great podcast on, uh, oh no, you know what? Sorry, it's probably a YouTube video. I did a great YouTube video on why can't I sleep. I will link that one down below. You can also just search for that on YouTube by typing in health by Heather Hirsch. And that just goes over great sleep hygiene tips. So I don't want to make this podcast too long, but certainly incorporating really healthy lifestyles and thinking about sleep hygiene is so, 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 so important before, again, of course, we go into medications, which most of my breast cancer patients just simply don't want to add another medication. So I really encourage you to look at that because the sleep hygiene tips are life changing. The biggest one is to take the TV out of your bedroom. And if you want to know why, please go watch that YouTube video. There are medications that can help with sleep, and actually some of the uh, SSRIs, low-dose SSRIs and SNRIs that we use to blunt hot flashes can also induce sleep, and that's why I tend to use them at bedtime. So things either like paroxetine or even the Bristel or fluoxetine or uh, citalopram, those are all great kinds of options that you can use at bedtime to see if they help with sleep. Uh, before we go also into medications, you can also try and consider melatonin, 10 milligrams, which is over the counter, and a favorite of mine, magnesium, 250 to 500 milligrams over the counter. And you can also try those to see if they induce some relaxation and sleep. Other options that I tend to like are things like amitriptyline, low dose, trazodone, low dose. These are really nice to see if they might help with sleep. Sometimes my patients will take um, hydroxazine as well, or um, one of those in the antihistamine class like Unisom that can also perhaps induce sleep. You do want to try and avoid long-term use of um, either ambience or benzo-like substances, and that's just because they can be very addictive. They work very well. And because they work so well, you just forget your sleep hygiene because you know you have this pill that's going to really help you. Now, a lot of people are on these and also this is not a judgment zone. And so if you need them and you've been on them for a while, that's a discussion that you can continue to have with your doctor. I just try to encourage sleep hygiene as well. Another big symptom I see so much is the brain fog. Now, this is really funny because uh, in the oncology world, everyone calls this chemo brain. I call it menopause brain. And I think if you think about it, there's a lot of similarities. Anyways, what are you going to do about brain fog? Well, brain games are really, really helpful. And it doesn't have to be just the Sudoku or the crossword puzzles. It could be games with your family, even things like Monopoly or battleship, whatever it is, anything that's kind of keeping you active on something that you're not actively doing every single day. If you're working, of course, you're doing a lot of executive functioning and you're using your brain, but you're probably doing a lot of repetitive tasks. So go out of your way to try and learn something new. That could be a new language, or you could start listening to, um, you know, learning how to do new, new language while you're out exercising or picking up a new instrument. If that's something that you're interested in, artwork, anything that's going to use your brain in new and different ways can really help you with the brain fog. It's something that kind of happens to us, especially in menopause and midlife as we age, but keeping your brain working just like any other muscle. You don't use it, you lose it. So keep using your brain in different types of ways, shapes, and forms. 
Bone health is also so important, and most of the oncology teams are so wonderful and astute and remember to get your bone densities. They know that things like the aromatase inhibitor class can really be harsh on your bones, whereas tamoxifen actually can have neutral or positive effects on your bones. Interestingly, I always quiz my students on this, but you're going to want to make sure you're checking up your bones, especially uh, with chemo, with menopause, if you're taking any type of steroids, so make sure you do check a bone density. Most of my wonderful oncologists are really well-versed and understand how to treat osteopenia and osteoporosis. Make sure you're taking vitamin D. Make sure you're taking calcium best from your diet. And if you've been listening to this podcast before, you know I talk about those all the time. Be sure to be doing some weight-bearing exercises as well. This can be body weight. You do not have to go join Orange Fairy or CrossFit. You can simply do you know, squats in your own or um, push-ups against the wall and start using your own body weight for exercise. And lastly, I did not mean to leave this for last, but cardiovascular health is so important. We know the leading cause of death in our breast cancer survivors and our breast cancer patients is cardiovascular disease. That is the leading cause of death in women in general by large. And so I don't want to necessarily leave this for last, but I do just want to make sure that we all remind ourselves that cardiovascular health is so important. What can you do for that? Of course, exercise and maintain a healthy lifestyle. That's easy to say, to sit in my room here and talk into a microphone and say diet and exercise. But I also want you to keep track of certain numbers, your A1C value. If that is creeping up, that could be worrisome for you developing prediabetes or diabetes, which is a a hit to your cardiovascular system. Your cholesterol profile, uh, your triglycerides, your LDL, and your HDL. You really want to watch those as well. You also want to think about your blood pressure. It's a really important number because you want to keep your blood pressure in the most normal tensive range that you can. Those are other... um, things that can harm your heart. Of course, you want to avoid smoking and you want to do maintain some cardiovascular exercise. It could be as simple as walking and getting 10,000 steps a day, or if you're a ultra biker, you know, do those things too. But your cardiovascular health can simply not be forgotten about. A lot of our breast cancer patients and survivors also will get routine echoes. They'll look at to see if they have any types of heart failure or if their heart is ejecting the right amount of blood in each heart stroke. And those are sometimes really good markers, but be sure, be sure to talk to your primary care doctors and your oncologist if you are ever developing any kind of chest pain. I am not a bona fide oncologist or cardiologist. I'm a board certified internist who did a fellowship in women's health and specializes in midlife and menopause. But I see these as well so often in my clinic because again, chronic diseases do tend to develop at the same time as we lose our estrogen at the same time as we go through menopause. So you want to think about your heart health. I have also some great episodes, even just two back. I did one on uh, heart palpitations with Dr. Daryl Lee Lewis. You can listen to that that episode. And I also did one a few back with Dr. Schufelt on not just these risk factors, but other risk factors for cardiovascular disease, which include things like uh, connective tissue disorders, um, gestational complications like gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, and so many other things that just knowledge is power. So I really want to hype my podcast. And I've had some amazing guests on here to really inundate y'all with so much good information. 
All right, guys, this has been one of the longest podcasts I have recorded. I am talking and it's getting into the 38 minute mark here. I want to thank you guys so much. I love all of my patients and a special hug, virtual hug to all of my breast cancer patients, breast cancer survivors, all of y'all who've had other reproductive cancers, and any of you who also have family members who are going through this, friends who are going through this, or other, you know, medical complications where you cannot take estrogen products like history of uh, clots or lung uh, embolisms. Uh, all of y'all are so special. And the message I want to leave you is, is this, is that your menopause symptoms are important and they matter. And your quality of life is very, very important. And there are things that we can do and there are ways that we can control this. And just simply knowing that there's a lot of things that you could try. There's some things that are out there, hopefully gives you a good gleam of hope. This is dedicated to all the amazing patients, uh, not only at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, but those that I have seen at uh, Ohio State Wexner Medical Center where I practiced before. I just really thank you guys for being the inspiration for everything that I do and for this podcast. Thank you guys for listening in. If you have any time, which I know you don't, to leave a star review on this podcast, that would be so helpful. Those things help other women see this podcast who live far, far away, who have no idea who I am and are maybe not your close friends that you texted to. So please take the time to do that. If this was helpful and you love this podcast, send it to your friends or relatives. That helps so much. This is a labor of love and I do this because I'm so passionate about taking care of women at the end of our reproductive cycles. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. I will not be back next week. Next week is Thanksgiving. I hope you all have wonderful holidays. They're going to look very different in 2020. Feel free to binge through my old podcasts if you're sitting at home for four days with little to do. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day and evening. Bye now.